Welcome to the most interesting people in higher education. I'm Lee Bradshaw, and this is a Noodle production. I've spent my entire career collaborating with some of the most influential campus leaders. Together, we've transformed higher ed. In this series, I'll take you on never-heard-before journeys from the narrative arcs of the people evolving some of the most respected institutions in the world. You'll get an insider perspective from the mission-driven administrators, influential professors, devoted researchers, and others that are part of the highly interesting cadre of people transforming higher ed. Welcome to the show. Our most recent guest on The Most Interesting People in Higher Ed is an economist and a wildly intelligent conversation. I had an incredible time talking with Dr. Shaveen Yeltikin, the dean of the highly ranked Simon Business School at the University of Rochester. If you're looking for someone to shape the future of a business school, it's probably a good bet to bring on a Stanford PhD economist. Thinking pragmatically and deeply is a pretty good skill set to have during these times. Right off the bat, I knew we had a guest who was a passionate learner and a passionate teacher with a sincere interest in education. This is how Shaveen spoke about her high school and how it changed her life. I remember just being floored by it, that, that I, so different from the approaches I'd ever seen. I once heard someone say, you can't take the classroom out of a great teacher. And I think this is what they meant. But it is because you're trying to draw in a crowd. You're trying to engage them in the content that you're teaching. You're trying to engage them with the material and with your way of delivering it. In these days, it seems like everywhere you look, someone's an expert on cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. But it shouldn't surprise us that Shaveen has been advocating for blockchain technology for quite a while. First of all, just academically speaking, uh, just sort of from a scholar researcher's point of view, it's a fascinating piece of technology. I had such a great time talking with Shaveen. I think you're really going to enjoy what she has to say. So make sure to listen to the whole episode. And here we go. Welcome to the most recent episode of The Most Interesting People in Higher Ed. Uh, I am joined today by Shaveen Yeltikin. She's the dean of the Simon Business School uh, up in Rochester. And uh, we're going to get into a lot of stuff today, specifically around economics and economic policy, maybe some talk of cryptocurrency, uh, maybe some talk of uh, what she's done in her, uh, in her pathway to being a dean and how she got there. And so I, without further ado, Shadeen, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So before we get into it, I, uh, I'll give you a little context to how we got here for the listeners. Uh, I was speaking to a friend at Columbia Business School uh, and said, I'm creating this podcast on the most interesting people in higher ed. Do you know anyone? And he says, yes, Shaveen, the dean of Simon Business School. Uh, and so I wanted to share that first uh, as we get into things. Your, your educational background is, is nothing short of impressive with a PhD and an MA from uh, Stanford, both in economics, before that Wellesley. And you're an immigrant to the United States, which I just find to be also highly interesting and important to talk about. How did you come to be? How did you get here? Well, thank you. Um, I grew up in Istanbul, Turkey. I'm originally from Istanbul, Turkey. And I came to the United States. I think I, I hadn't even turned 18, just fresh out of high school, with two suitcases, never been to the United States before. And I came to Wellesley College to what I thought at the time I was going to pursue a, a degree mostly in mathematics and perhaps political science. But before that, I think the journey to Wellesley was 
the the middle and high school. Um, I spent seven years in a bilingual school called Robert College. It wasn't really a college. It was a it was a middle and high school, but it was established. Uh, it was actually one of the very first, if not the first, American missionary school that had been established outside of the United States. But it had then, of course, changed and had been taken over or at least sort of supervised by the, uh, you know, the Department of Education in Turkey, but maintained a lot of the, you know, amazing qualities that I think American educational approach has, which is critical thinking, problem solving, resilience, kind of being a bit interest driven rather than, you know, what was strictly in the in the curriculum. That whole experience changed my life. You know, I, I entered that school. Turkey has a very structured exam system to locate people into various middle schools and high schools, and then ultimately into higher education. We had to take an exam. And, you know, Robert College was one of the top places in Turkey to get into. It was a bilingual school. I, I would have the benefit of learning a new language. And just the education system there was so different. And, and I remember just being floored by it that that I so different from the approaches I'd ever seen we could speak up we could critically think we learned how to write I had an amazing group of peers that I am still in touch with I had about 110 mm. 20 people that. in my class about 100 and plus of us are in a whatsapp group to this day we have reunions we we chat we we discuss everything from child reading to politics to whatever have aging these days, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whose knees are hurting, right? You, um, you, haven't, you haven't moved that chat over to Signal from WhatsApp? No, well, we're, we're debating it though. We're debating yeah. whether yeah. we should or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, it was an incredible journey for me. I mean, education really changed my life. That particular education really changed my life, opened up opportunities I never even knew possible, which is, you know, just simply even studying uh, abroad. And, you know, I, it, it was funny because I, I was a very good math student. I, I was really interested in math and I thought I would go and study math. But at the same time, I really liked reading and writing. I really liked politics. I was interested in what was happening around the country, around the world. So I was a little bit, I suppose, when I went to see the college counselor and amazingly, we had a college counselor. And um, because in Turkey, it was an exam system. There was no such a sort of thing of counseling. But we had a college counselor who helped you choose some colleges in the United States and elsewhere. So I would say, you know, I like mathematics a lot, but I also like this. And I look at it and I thought she thought going and getting a liberal arts education would mm. be the best for me yeah. because then I could really yeah. explore these different interests rather than tie myself to a particular. And I ended up at Wellesley. And, you know, I can't say that it was a very um, extremely informed choice on my part, uh, but it turned out to be the right choice. <laughs> they were extremely generous. They uh, not only accepted me, but gave me a very generous scholarship. And from then on, I moved from, I stayed with mathematics, but after dabbling a bit more in political science, I moved into economics because that I realized that I could do social science and I could do social science that had a lot of math in it. And, and economics became my kind of, you know, comfort spot. So my, uh, my friends in finance that love math too are going to roll their eyes at this, but I have to ask you, what are your thoughts on the brain drain? Uh, of, of highly intelligent mathematicians into finance. Like you stuck with it. You're still in academe. You're still doing the research. Kudos. And then you have some guys and gals that go off to the big banks to take those intellects there. Are we, uh, are we okay with that? 
or is there or do we need I to, think we, we need should to, be okay with it because the thing I think that what I think about that is that you know maybe this sounds like a little bit like tooting our own horns but it's there is an incredible discipline and clarity about math and I think yeah. that is whether you are a scholar whether you become you know a a working mathematician <laughs> or or you go into one of the more applied fields, whether it's finance in, in or outside of academia. That sort of, I think, precision, clarity, and, and discipline in thinking, I think if we're, we're able to kind of get those kinds of people into the you know, realms of yeah. uh, managing companies and yeah. managing investments, I, I think that's a good thing. It cannot be a bad thing. Keeps us on track. Yeah. It's, it's not it's not shooting from the hip and ad hoc, right. you know, stuff. It's it's people who are being very thoughtful about All right. what they do. My friends will appreciate that. <laughs> I don't not to go, we're not gonna go into politics unless you want to, but I, I'm assuming you liked uh Andrew Yang's slogan, make America think again, math, uh, and his hats. I I, I thought that was a pretty yeah. charming, a pretty charming rendition. Yes. Yes, we all have to think and it doesn't have to be, you know, it's 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 that critical thinking. I mean, it's it's still one of the hardest things to teach, hardest things to impart, but also one of the most sort of, I think, essential skills, no matter where you are. I completely agree. And I have to believe you because I see here your interests are computational economics, social insurance design, fiscal policy design, macro policy, asset pricing implications. That's an intimidating list of things. So I'm just going to follow well, whatever you say, Shireen, I'm just going to follow that. Um, no, there's, a, there's a theme attached to it. There's a theme. I know it may okay. sound like a lot of jargon and, you know, maybe even this separate words, what is computational, this and, and fiscal policy that have to do with one another. But if, if I may, I'll give you a little sort of context about it all. So I, I would love to be a student. I know you have okay. a, quite right. a background so, in teaching. So if you can take me to school, that would be great. Sure. One of the things, you know, if, if if we just look around now, there's discussions in the Senate and Congress about the second stimulus package, right? The follow-up to the CARES Act. So how do we design that? How do we design a stimulus package? How do we how do we use tax revenue? Who do we tax? How do we tax them? How much do we tax them? And then how do we distribute those resources into the right places? And we have multiple competing sometimes goals, right? We want to redistribute to help the, the most unfortunate and provide some sort of a social support. We want to be able to fuel innovation. We want to be able to build infrastructure. You know, there are many, many competing goals and lots of trade-offs uh, associated with those goals because we don't have endless supply of resources. Uh, you know, economics is all about taking limited resources and putting them to the best use you can, depending on your goals. So fiscal policy is no different than that. You know, fiscal and monetary policy is all about kind of the government designing these overarching policies about who to tax, how to tax, and then how to reallocate those resources. But when we start to sort of write models, sit down and write these models, we have lots of bells and whistles attached to it. We have a government sector. We have an entire economy that we're trying to sort of model and simulate. We have people with different preferences, people with different abilities. We have firms. We have the financial sector. So you can imagine our models get very hairy, very complicated, very fast. And then we have strategic actors, right? Are we, are we all sort of just 
playing along or are we actually strategically thinking about how people are going to respond to policies that we put in effect? So all of these things make our models relatively complicated and solving these models by these mathematical models by hand theoretically becomes sort of impossible comes in the computational side of it, which is that we actually kind of model okay. these on the computer and, and simulate them in, or solve them with sort of numerical algorithms. And then we can move those pieces, you know, we can sort of use the model as like a little sandbox to say, if, if I increase the tax on this person, but I decrease the tax on this sector of the economy, what would the outcomes be? And that's where, you know, my computational economics meets my sort of policy design and then meets my game theory training, which is the strategic element, all come together. So I hope that makes a little bit more sense yeah, than, than what it was on that paper. But it's, it's making more sense. And if it's yeah. not, I'll just keep nodding along. That's fine. That's, and, and fine. You'll, that's you'll what my never, students do, too. <laughs> you'll never know if I'm following, but I, I, it does make more sense. So, so objectivity is important to you. Clearly, I mean, that, that's kind of the key. Where in your life are you not objective? Where's your most subjective self? With my children, probably. Yeah. <laughs> that, would be, that would be, you know, it's funny because I, you know, obviously everybody have their affinity, you know, that you, you sort of, you're hardwired to protect your own children. You're hardwired to, you know, do the best by them, which is, which is a good survival technique for your children. Right. But it's, I think, I think that's when I, I sometimes sort of uh, have the more ex most anxieties um, and, and also have the most sort of sense of joy and, and accomplishment. And, and they might be even disproportionate to what's really happening. But I think that's where I do let my emotions get ahead of my rational brain sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I think you have to enter the monkey mind. When yes. you're when you're when you're working with with young folks, I don't know if yes. explaining cause and effect and logic is is going to work. You know, I also learned a lot from rearing children in terms of applying some of those things to management, and I don't mean that in a patronizing way. It's it's mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. a lot of you know, especially if you have more than one child, there's a <laughs> there's a lot of hostage negotiation that goes on. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of negotiation that goes on. There's a lot of sort of trying to please, you know, uh, two people, three people, four people with deferring needs right. and deferring right. interests, project management, because my goodness, you know, those deferring interests and, and uh, ability to sort of coordinate means that you have to sort of be, and especially as a working parent, you know, ahead of their schedules and ahead of your schedule. I mean, you learn a lot about just general basic foundational management you know I don't know which one comes first whether I had those and applied them to my children but I think it went the other way as well to be perfectly honest I would I would imagine so my wife and I got married last year I think I mentioned oh, that congratulations before, so we don't have kids yet but I will share that when we got a puppy uh, I read all up on positive reinforcement yeah. and I can tell you uh, I don't know how this will come across um, as I make these parallels but bear with me here I understood that positive reinforcement doesn't mm -hmm. just work on dogs, right? Like no, no one wants to be scolded. So no one enters into a negotiation uh, hoping for that result, no matter what. Uh, and you don't even get to the negotiation if you've already, exactly. you've already scolded. And so I, I'm excited to learn from kids mm -hmm. things of, of management, right? Like, and, and things yes. to improve my yeah. life. Yeah. Uh, and like, and look at those transactions 
uh, with kids mm -hmm. and understand that they're just a different mindset. Uh, but they're they're very similar because they're just young us. <laughs> uh, and they can be very different too. Like the other thing you learn is that they respond to different kinds of reinforcement and different kinds of incentives and different kinds of way of interacting. And, you know, even two children who grew up in the same household um, have the same parents. Right. They they have their own personality and they just they just approach things in a different way. So you have to, and it's almost like coming into a meeting and figuring out, okay, how do I, what are the different ways that people respond and how do I bring them on board, all of them as much as possible? And and I think there's definitely a lot of learning to be to be had <laughs> from that experience. I'll let you know. As, as I learn, okay. I'll, I'll right. check back well, in with you. Uh, puppies are good training. Puppies are good yeah. training. It's good. good I training. love puppies. I'm a huge dog lover. I'm a huge animal lover. Anyway. Okay. What kind of dogs do you have? I, I have, have dogs, for some reason, I have a dog, I have a cat, and I have a guinea pig. And I really mean I have them because even though some of them were allegedly my children's pets, they have become almost solely mine. You know, that's that's another thing you learn. You end up with the work, even if you didn't mean right. to. No, I, I'm a huge animal lover. I do. I have a, a I have a golden doodle uh, because my older daughter is a little bit allergic to dogs. I do have a little ginger cat called Morris. And and I have a little ginger guinea pig who we're thinking that he she really might be like a cyborg or something because she's well past by many years the average life expectancy of a guinea pig. I'd like to think it's all the organic vegetables I'm feeding her, but she might just the be average mechanical. Average, <laughs> like, average life for guinea pig sixty like five to eight years. Okay. Um, okay. And I think she's about. 10 and a half approaching 11 um so well, good for her she's doing yeah, great she's doing, she's doing fantastic she's, she's right clean. behind me she's eating very clean uh, i mean so back for a moment back to the i mean mm -hmm. you took me to school for a moment i appreciate that i i'll process and synthesize and hopefully anchor some of that to experience Thank you. <laughs> um and then we talked about kids and teaching and i i know from obviously googling uh you're the leland bach you have an excellence in teaching award from from Carnegie Mellon and Tepper. Mm -hmm. um, are you still teaching at, at Simon? Or this is the at... very first year in 22 years of being a professor um, or, or a faculty member. I have not taught. An empty nest. This is the very. I am, and I am. I. It's funny. I. I have to say, I have a bit of a withdrawal from it. I. There is something about teaching. It's a bit, you know, how you, you you hear actors, actors that do both stage and kind of movie work, and they talk about how the the live audience is a completely different experience um, than sort of doing, you know, retakes uh, to to get a perfect scene without the audience and only the crew members. It's the same thing. It's like there's something about. It's not. It's partly performance. Teaching right. is partly performance. Yeah. Not because you're not. You're not being yourself, or you're saying something that's that's sort of make believe, but it is because you're trying to draw in a crowd. You're trying to engage them in the content that you're teaching. You're trying to engage them with the material and with your way of delivering it. And you want them to come out of that class, not only being able to do well on an exam, but sort of excited and yeah. interested. And the next time they see an article and they pick it up and they read it because they took your class and, and be able to use it, you know, that, that that's what you're really aiming for. And there's a, you know, 
the research side of our careers, it's, it's very much, you know, we're on a podcast so people can't see my hand movements, but it's brain in a jar. You know, I, I, you know I, I joke that it's like brain in a jar with two hands so we can type, right? The rest of our bodies are used very much. And teaching is the, and, and it's, it can be also a very isolating experience because you, a lot of times you're just thinking, mm. thinking, doing, and writing, sometimes with groups, but especially in social sciences, it's not like working in a lab environment. We don't necessarily have that sort of more uh, physical work that we do with a large group of people. So you, you can spend weeks on end in your office thinking and writing and rethinking and solving problems without much interaction with, with, with other people if you're not teaching. So the teaching part is almost the polar opposite to that. You know, first of all, you get an audience who doesn't like an audience, right? And second of all, when you see people learn, when you see people interact with the material that you're teaching, that's sort of instant gratification. Yeah. Uh, when you see them leave as class happy, that's instant gratification compared to sometimes, you know, working on a problem for five years and finally seeing it in print. Uh, and uh, so it's a different part of it. But it's also because, I mean, like I said, education changed my life. And, and I'm a huge and firm believer in the power of you know, education broadly said, you know, not everybody needs to go and get a PhD. Not everybody even needs right. to go and get multiple masters, but it's just, you know, you've got to find something you're interested in and learn and get some skills associated with that. So you can keep on doing what you're interested in and, and do it well. Um, and and I, I think to me, that's paramount. I agree. I'm not going to take credit for this, but I, I heard somewhere, or read somewhere, somebody say something, you, you can disagree that, how education should be administered. You can disagree to the extent people need to go to terminal degrees, but you, no one can disagree that more education mm -hmm. is worse, right? More education is better. We, exactly. Like it, problems get solved. People understand each mm -hmm. other better. Uh, you know, it's not a zero sum game. Uh, we, can yeah. all, we can all rise up. So yeah, I, I love that. Yeah. What do you, something we're, we're thinking about over here a lot is the degree right mm -hmm. the thing that we all recognize and, and employers recognize as a as a very clear credential of, of either acumen or competency and non-degree all this mm -hmm. other stuff and there's seven ten different permutations of it different names and uh, the students don't call them skill alt, alt credentials or skills gaps things like that they call them promotions or uh mm -hmm. things to put on my linkedin how do you make sense of it now you're mm -hmm. i know you've you created uh i think Correct me if I'm wrong. A master's in product management, master's in uh, a master's in business analytics, mm -hmm. two degrees. How do you think about the rest of the uh, the rest of the marketplace, if you will? Yeah, I mean those degrees. You know, I can't take full credit because they were they were sort of designed with a whole group of curriculum, and I was I was certainly given the task to launch them and to modify them as 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 you know needed be but i've done a lot of curriculum review i've done a lot of sort of educational programming both at, in my job at tepper and even as a as a professor just before then because we would sit in committees and we this would be part of our task as well what's the difference between sort of a degree and you know these credentials or or certificates and other things i couple of things. I mean, I think for a degree, the way that I always have approached sort of an educational program is that you have to deliver, first of all, some foundational skills, what I call kind of like a sleeper skills, right? These are skills and mm. these are 
frameworks and approaches that are not going to become stale. You know, it's not like teaching you a particular, how to use a particular software because that software may be replaced in two, three years time. And given the speed of things, maybe even faster, right? Exactly. right? It's, it's not about sort of that immediate application and that immediate task on hand. You know, it's these sleeper skills, foundational skills that teaches you how to approach a problem how to take the right tools to solve a problem. What is the way of thinking? And I, I mentioned earlier on about sort of economics really being about kind of, you know, thinking about how to do resource allocation and mm -hmm. quantifying trade-offs. You know, the basic approach in that is to say, what is your objective? What are you trying to do? Okay, if your objective is redistribution a little bit so that we provide a social safety net to people, okay, that's your objective. And then what are your constraints? Where your constraints are going to be things like, obviously, how much resources you have. Your constraints is going to be how easy it is going to be to be able to deliver that program, how complicated that program is, the, the operational piece of it. And now what you have is any problem you put in front of me, whether it's about redistribution, whether it's something else, I'm going to be trained to think of it as what's my objective function? What are my constraints? I need to start from there. And those constraints can be what we call technology constraints, like the implementation of being right. able to do things right. to resource constraints and constraints that I might face because I need to bring a bunch of people on consensus, right? There's lots of different kinds of, but it's always being able to map a problem into some framework and knowing what tools to apply. That's a fundamental skill. That is not a software specific or an application specific skill. And what I think, educational programs, uh, a good educational design program do is give you those kinds of foundational skills in any of the degree programs, and then dig deeper into areas of interest. But also degrees typically come with a little bit more general education than that as well, so that you don't look like you've just gone into a trade school or a vocational school, right? We're trying to sort of bring different disciplines that you might be a you know mathematician but it's good for you to know a bit of history it's good mm. for you to know how to write it's good right. for you to know how to debate right. it, it's yep. all of those things you actually end up using in your real life one way or another one form or another so you know when i think about the more formal piece of the education which is what we get in higher education and degree programs a well-designed degree program should be able to give you those breadth of education foundational skills, and then sort of more refined skills. Now you've done that, and then you realize a new tool comes on board, a new approach comes on board. This is where I think that recertification and these more targeted non-degree offerings can be helpful. I'd like to know a little bit more about causal inference, machine learning, let me go take a certificate course. I'd like to know a little bit about sort of, you know, digital transformation in the healthcare industry. Uh, let me go a little bit more about that. For those, you may not need a full degree or you already have the foundational skills. You just need to understand where the, so that's, I think, one of the major differences between these. The other one is that, well, degree programs in higher education, we are, we do have checks and balances on them. We have a lot more oversight of them, them and quality control over them than we do on certificate programs. And the quality control both comes from our 
own established infrastructure within a university because we have committees and we have evaluations and we have, you know, we have a process to put degree programs. But we also have departments of education that we have to pass them through. And we have to have, you know, accreditor bodies that we have to satisfy and pass masters. So there's a lot more checks and balances on the quality and content of the degree programs. And that is a, you know, that is like being able to get that stamp of approval. Whereas on credit programs, there isn't. On these sort of certifications, there isn't. So it's sort of, you know, buyer beware. You're going to have to judge the quality and the usefulness of that on your own. I like that. And I, I think a lot of people, people make sense of things by going to the extremes. Right? Yes. This is my, like, my, I guess my opinion a little bit, but uh, I don't think I'm alone. You know, like people say, like they're going to replace degrees, or degrees will overtake them. And you're you're kind of you're you're offering up a framework where there's an order of operations and there's a, a supplemental relationship, yes. rather than this this conflict uh, between exactly. The and it's like I don't know why folks want to go to either side so much. It's kind of yeah, I guess it's human. Yeah. Well, there's a pie to be split. So they think they think it's a zero-sum game and right. it needs to be split the pie and let's get a bigger piece of the pie. I just think it's com- constantly complementary. You you wouldn't, as I mean, we see this in our business schools as well, right? Folks who've graduated 10, 15 or so years ago, they want to come back and understand some of the data analytics that wasn't the necessarily the, the, the bread and butter of every business school program or, or even had a big presence, right? We're offering a wider range now. We're offering more of their applications. And we've actually invited at Simon. One of the first things I did was invite back a group of our kind of test uh, alumni because we were offering classes in hybrid format. I said, you can sign up for classes and you know you can sign up for sort of things that are more new new tools and new things that, that weren't there when you, uh, when you were a student or you can sign up for things that were here for a student but in that at that point in time you were interested in a different field maybe you wanted to go into finance but then you moved into a more of a marketing role and now you want to understand a little bit more about I don't know brand strategy or something like that so or you're now an entrepreneur and you want to take a few more entrepreneurship classes that you didn't take at the time because you didn't think that was going to be your path so we've opened it up and I think for those it's great to be able to get that idea and that's another thing too like the idea of dabbling in it a little bit before you commit maybe you realize that at the end of it yeah I would like to get a terminal degree or I would like to dig deeper but it gives you the opportunity to sample and that can't be a bad thing so how do you I want to get into some other stuff before we you know go too far but how do you Chavin or even just Simon or the world like how do you think about this make sure that folks follow that right maybe not the right path, but a continued path. So they don't fall off or they don't misinterpret the lessons and don't think about the terminal degree and they just end at a few certificates after master's. Like, what do, mm-hmm. what do we do to continue that continuum is I guess the more succinct way to ask it. And have you seen anything that works? I mean, I think, because I think maybe we do need to move away from the idea of a terminal degree, that that learning is a lifelong, continuous mm. exercise, right? Okay. And and that there are many different, you know, modes of learning. Certainly getting getting terminal degrees or official degrees, like I said, has all of the benefits that I've outlined. Plus, it is a signal to the market about what you've learned and what your credentials are and that you'd been selected to be able to do that but it's 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 also i think you know, learning takes many forms and and for me it's 
it's always starts with the question of what is your objective? Are you doing this because you're just intellectually curious? Are you doing this because this is a function of your job that you would like to understand better? Are you doing this because you want to move on to the next promotion stage? All of those are perfectly valid reasons for getting more education. Are you doing this because, you know, your brother-in-law at the Thanksgiving dinner is driving you crazy and you want to know a little bit more about Bitcoin so you can shut him up? I, 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 whatever your purpose is, you know, we're here to sort of help direct you to the right outlet. Yeah. And that's, that's I think, if we can be honest about that, then, um, and, and I think if uh, then we do everybody, like you said, more, more, more rigorous education cannot be a bad thing. That's a good added word too, rigorous. Right? Yeah. Edutainment uh, might not be the answer. Yes, um, edutainment, definitely not. Okay, since you, since you said the word Bitcoin, um, <laughs> you know I'm going to go there. I, uh, I, won't ex- I won't expose my own portfolio, but as a, uh, as a member of the, of the crypto clan, you know, I, I, I saw that you, while at Tepper, you, you, uh, you brought in teaching, learning, and blockchain and cryptocurrency all together. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just listened to, to Michael Saylor speak about some stuff and like, you listen to him and you're like, okay, the world is going to live off of Bitcoin. There'll be an exchange on top of it. That'll, so we won't have to think about how slow and, and hot the systems are. Um, and you read the, you know, the Wall Street Journal bears, if you will, on, on the oil industry. And they're saying like, it's a joke. It's, it's, it's already done. You just don't know it yet. Do you have an opinion on the future of, of Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, anything? Litecoin, Ethereum, or are you still thinking it more of a, from a research perspective? I can disclose my portfolio. I own about 0.000, whatever it is enough to just be able to have a wallet so that I can go poke around in some places to learn for my research. And it's not because I don't believe in Bitcoin. I mean, it's, it's first of all, just academically speaking, uh, just sort of from a scholar researcher's point of view, it's a fascinating piece of technology. And the reason I say that is because it is one of the most amazing examples of kind of, you know, we talk a lot in higher education these days about interdisciplinary approaches, interdisciplinary Mm. approaches. It is an amazing piece of framework that combines cryptography, incentives within economic incentives, and as well as sort of uh, some savviness about sort of perhaps how monetary units work and, you know, and other pieces of, of sort of protocols from computer science. I mean, and, and also, you know, integrated systems. It, it's, it's just, it's really quite an amazing feat to be able to do that in one product. So for me, it's a fascinating thing to look at. And so that's the academic, you know, scholarly okay. side yeah. of it. Set, um, set the on, on the sort of, you know, what has happened with Bitcoin? I mean, again, it's it's one of those things where the, you you mentioned people taking these very very extreme positions, right? If you if you read the original paper on Bitcoin, you know how it came about, and it's, it, it's quite a, yeah, it's well, it's quite an anarchist move, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. down with the system. I shall introduce a a currency. That is that doesn't have central banks and governments, and it's going to be for the people, by the people, used by the people. I mean, it's it's quite a manifesto uh, when you read it, you read the whole thing. In reality, that's not how it works. <laughs> In reality, we don't even know who the miners are, and if anything, most of the mining is really grouped in 
a few large entities whose provenance we know nothing about. Right. For all I know, you're like the, the evil empire behind it in your basement. I don't know, right? At least I know who the Federal Reserve head is. <laughs> I know the senators on the you know monetary policy commission and, that's, that's and the board the of governors. That's just and the beauty of decentralization. Well, it's the beauty. Well, the, the problem is it's not as decentralized as we would like it to be, right? right? It's right, not. It's that's not fair. equal access. It's it's it requires a lot of computing power. It requires, and because of that, and of course, immediately people responded to incentives and realized that if you try to be a miner and I try to be a miner and single-handedly we we didn't have the power, the, the optimal strategy is to get together and, you know, have a giant mine. And, and that's exactly what they did. And they, they formed these, you know, whether it's colonies or one, one big person operating behind it, who knows? It, we know a lot less about it. And that makes me a little bit more nervous. It has other problems as well, because it's capped, at least by design. I mean, that's why all of the other sort of currencies that are kind of you know, derivatives off of it <laughs> is is an important thing to. I, derivatives of, by derivative, I mean it's <laughs> like it's sort of backed up to the same system or backed right. off into the same. Is it? It's it's just that. So so here are the things. Convertibility is an important thing for any currency to be widely accepted. It needs to have convertibility, and by that I mean. Look, you know, you need you have no trouble accepting my dollar. Most people don't have any trouble accepting my dollar, but most people are going to have trouble accepting the Bitcoin either for technological reasons because they can't process it or because of beliefs, right? There's nothing about the dollar either. It's a piece of you know recycled paper, yeah. basically uh, linen actually. so it's 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 just that it's backed by you know, the authority and, and backed by the kind of the US government and it's been stable and it because it's been stable, we like to hold it. People talk about sort of Bitcoin. When I whenever I read any of these comments on sort of like social media, Bitcoin is a is a bubble and it's and it's it's not backed by anything. I'm like Neither is the U.S. dollar. <laughs> Did you know that? Right. <laughs> you know, we're not in the gold standard anymore. Uh, but it's it's sort of interesting because I I don't believe in the two extremes. I do think that alternatives like this certainly provide. Well, certainly, definitely seems to have provided some illegal activity a lovely way to do exchanges. Because up until recently, a lot of the Bitcoin exchanges has to do with sort of you know selling marijuana. <laughs> buying marijuana but it has also um you know it it does provide a little bit of discipline on maybe the more official and legitimate currencies and it can be a good conduit in places where the official currency isn't functioning very well i appreciate all venezuela yeah yeah right i mean it's interesting to see what happens to the u.s with any sort of hyperinflation in the last Exactly. Last year, um, and I think that's kind of the the people that are right. really serious about Bitcoin, the 21 million mm-hmm. Bitcoins that exist that we know of. I know, like let's let's assume that that's true. Uh, yeah. They're looking I at mean, this as, as an answer. And yeah. Kind of I mean, it's price is too volatile for anybody to want to hold it in, but but it can provide. Right. It can provide a, a means of transfer in places, especially where the system isn't working very well. And you could, I mean, just to just to play bull for a second, you could, and I'm going right back to you. I, I've done enough talking, but you could create an exchange on top of the large transactions yeah. with like what Square is doing and 
and, uh, and, and PayPal and all those folks. You could have those in real time exchanges and then one large transaction beginning of the day, end of the day. Like there are ways to work around that, right? And yeah. not to, yeah. I don't want to get into a debate with you. I think I think at the end we both. No, agree I, I don't. I am a I am a techno optimist. I think the yeah. new technologies coming in and trying and cutting across, you know, ways that we have done things. In which case, either because we had a clunky system that couldn't process things, was costly to do. You know, people talk about disruption. Disruption happens either because you have an incredibly inefficient process and yeah. the new technology, the new process comes in and makes that much more efficient, or you have an extremely regulated uh, mm. industry yep. where the people who are the insiders get a lot of rents and the people who are the outsiders don't and that rent is up for grabs right and then and, and that's why you see disruption in financial services especially payment systems why you see you try to you see disruptions in healthcare you see usually these disruptions happen in these relatively hard to enter industries and i i i, yeah. I am all for uh, techno optimism and competition i don't think those are bad things no, I think progress is good. Let's just keep an eye on it. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm realizing that not only are you interesting on paper, but you're interesting because you're interested. Like you're oh. throughout this whole conversation, you're, I realize you're just interested in everything. Before we wrap up though, uh, the same question that I've, I've been asking and um, I'd love to hear your take on it. Like, or I want to hear what you, how you would say it. What do you want people to know about you? That's a good question. <laughs> what do I know? I mean, I think you certainly nailed it with the fact that I am very interested. I like to read. I like to learn. You know, that's why I've stayed in academia. Being in a place of learning has always really interested me. The other thing people is like, sometimes I can come up across as being a bit stern because, you know, I'm, I'm action oriented and, 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 and so on. But actually underneath, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I like a good laugh. I like a good drink, you know, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly, and I have a much bigger capacity than what it looks like for, for fun. So that's probably what I would like people to, to learn. I gather that. And for the folks that can't see you right now, I, there's a whole bunch of Doctor Who figurines. I'm counting 40 of them behind you on the show. So like, it's true. There's a whole other side to Shaveen Yeltekin that we're just starting to get to know. Uh, Shaveen, thank you for joining. Uh, this has been incredible. Uh, I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. And that's our show. Thank you for listening to the most interesting people in higher education. This listening experience is brought to you by Noodle, the network of online higher education programs. Our mission is to lower the cost of higher ed through a pursuit of excellence in online learning. And make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. See you next time.